Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, a lot to talk about. I've been out of the country for over a month and I'm back now. But before we get into all the news I need to catch you up on, let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. Looking for a sewing machine that's both portable and powerful? Look no further than the legendary Sailrite Ultrafeed LSZ-1. Take it to the marina, store it on your boat. The Ultrafeed goes where you go. This high-performing, heavy-duty machine sews both in zigzag and straight stitch. The Ultrafeed can handle your toughest jobs with absolutely zero loss of power or skip stitches. It breezes through up to 10 layers of Sunbrella canvas and eight layers of Dacron sailcloth. With the most dependable all-metal internal components, the Ultrafeed is a piece of well-engineered machinery that's built to last. Sailrite has been building the Ultrafeed for over 20 years. This tried-and-true powerhouse machine comes with a five-year limited warranty and the best customer service in the industry. The machines are assembled, fine-tuned, and tested at Sailrite's manufacturing facility by a team of highly trained technicians. Every machine is calibrated and tested before it's shipped to guarantee both smooth operation and machine quality. Take your sewing skills to the next level with the Sailrite Ultrafeed LSZ-1 sewing machine. Wow, I'm like a kid in a candy store with a thousand bucks. As you know, my day job is that of an investment professional. I'm a registered investment advisor, and I manage clients' money. And I have to admit... Over the last few years, it's been a real struggle for me because I have not been a big believer in the uh, appreciating stock market. I've kept a lot of cash on the sidelines and also had a significant gold position because I just could not buy into the stupidity of what I saw the stock market doing. I've been around a long time. I started investing in when I was in high school. And that goes back to probably about 1969. I started investing, maybe 1970. So I've seen a lot of ups and downs in the stock market. So you're going to have to bear with me because I'm going to get back to sailing in a minute or two. But I just could never buy into the stupidity of higher and higher and higher price earnings ratios. Now, for those of you who don't know what a price-earnings ratio is, it's a standard valuation of, of company stock. And the, the simplest way to think about it is that if a company distributed all of its earnings in a dividend to the investor, that's how many years it would take to get your investment back. In other words, if a price-earnings ratio is 12 and the company distributed all its earnings to its stockholders – it would take you 12 years to get your money back. And there's some great companies out there that I would like to own, and I may end up owning them at some point in time. By owning, I mean buying shares of stock, because that's the way I look at buying stocks by, by investing in companies, is I'm an owner. I'm not a speculator. I'm not buying in the hope of a greater fool coming in and paying more for the stock than I did. I figure I'm an investor in the company, and I'm a partial owner of the company, and my my future income is tied to the results of that company, not to the stupidity of another investor coming in and buying me out at a higher price. But 
by the management of the company doing its job and making more money and creating cash flow that they can distribute either in dividends or in stock buybacks. And I'm not a big fan of stock buybacks. I consider that a form of stock market manipulation. So when a lot of professional investors like the idea of stock buybacks, I don't. I don't. Because I see a lot of the stock buybacks going back to management when they're exercising their options, which they paid virtually nothing for, and exercising their options and taking their money out of the market. In other words, taking their money out of the company. They get these options at nothing. They exercise their options. They pocket the money, and they don't keep the stock. So I like to see management having a significant position in the companies that I own. Anyway, right now the market is down 1,600 points, and the market is down over 20% from the high. And I have a lot of client cash on the sidelines, and I am getting ready to, uh, to start looking at companies that I might want to deploy those assets into. You know, you make money in the stock market by buying at the right price, by buying low and selling high, not by buying high and hoping a greater fool comes in and runs the stock up even higher, but by buying good companies at reasonable valuations. And one of the great investors that I always admire is Warren Buffett, and he has over $100 billion in cash on the sidelines, so he's probably looking his chops right now and looking for an opportunity to step in the market. And how is this going to affect the yacht charter business? Well, this coronavirus, nobody could have predicted the coronavirus, but I can tell you the stock market for the last over a year has been poised, just poised, ready for a correction, a serious correction. It's been the everything bubble. Everything has gone up to ridiculous valuations. And so all it took was one snowflake to bring the market down. And that snowflake turns out to be the coronavirus. Uh, just just to backtrack a little bit, because this is a company, this is a perfect exact example of a company that I'd like to own. And I haven't owned it yet, because I could never stomach the valuation that is being placed on this company. And this company is called Salesforce. So Salesforce is a relationship manager. The symbol is CRM, which normal parlance means contact relationship management. And it's a software as a service business. So in other words, they sign you up, you pay a monthly fee. And once you start using their software, you tend to keep using their software. And companies deploy this out to their sales forces. And as long as their employee count keeps going up, then Salesforce keeps adding new customers. So Salesforce, the company Salesforce, has had an increasing growth rate. The revenues have gone up every year because they have a good product. And companies that use their product have added new employees. And they picked up new companies or new customers along the way as well. I like the company. It's one I want to own. However, <laughs> when I do my analysis of the company, I can never stomach the price of the company. So, for instance, on uh, Salesforce, they have a P.E. ratio of 141.32. And today, and this is, no, this is not investment advice, by the way. This is just me r- rambling on about what I do for a living. Their stock is $151 a share today, down $10 today. But even at this price... It's selling at a price-earnings ratio of 141 times earnings. So in other words, if I bought that company, if I bought that stock and the company distributed all its earnings to its stockholders, it would take me 141 years to get back my investment. And even though the company is growing, 
<laughs> it's not growing fast enough for me to pay 141 times earnings for it. Now, I would probably pay maybe 30 to 50 times earnings for this company, but it's still got to drop a lot more before I can stomach overpaying for a company like this. But anyway, there are some companies that are coming down into what I consider great valuations, and I am like a kid in a candy store with a 1000 bucks looking for opportunities because I have a lot of cash on the sidelines that has been sitting there for years underperforming the market that now I can start looking to deploy. Ah, anyway, things are great in my business. So how's this stock market correction and probable recession going to affect the sailing industry? Well, my boat's in northern Italy right now, and I'm not even sure I'm going to be able to go over and get on my boat yet. I'm, I'm scheduled to fly out in, um, in March to get on my boat. I'm not sure if I'm going to go this year. Some of the people I've invited have not given me definite yeses because they're concerned about whether they want to travel or not. This coronavirus will bring on a recession, in my opinion, because people are going to modify their behavior to mitigate the risk of catching this virus. So people are going to quit going to crowded areas. They're going to quit flying. And that will trickle down through the economy and bring about lower earnings for companies, a lower GDP, and a recession. Now, the Federal Reserve Board has always ran to the rescue of the stock market in the past. They've already cut the federal funds rate by a half a percentage point already, which to me, when they did it, that seemed like panic behavior. But I don't care how low interest rates go. Is that going to make people go to crowded venues? Is that going to make people fly on planes? Is that going to make people get on cruise ships? I don't think so. I don't think so. How's that going to affect the yacht charter business this summer? Probably there are a lot of yachts that are booked that are being canceled right now. But the way I look at this is I've been looking for another boat to buy uh, in combination with a group of several people a larger boat, something in the neighborhood of 44 to 50 feet in length. And the reason I want that is because my boat is really too small to do what I want to do, which is sail with my family. I've got an extended family now. I've got three grandchildren and a son-in-law and my daughters. And (laughs) my boat could barely fit on four people when I was sailing with just my wife and my two daughters. And so I can't really take my extended family sailing on my boat. So I've been looking for another boat to pick up, and this may provide the opportunity because I've looked at some of the boats in Croatia and Greece over the last few years, and I've seen a creeping up in prices on the used market. And I just told my friend the last time I talked to him, I said, you know, we need to have a market correction and bring the prices of these boats down. Because when you have a recession, what, what happens, first of all? People get rid of their planes, their boats, and their second homes. And those prices tend to collapse as a result. So I'm going to be looking to see if the prices of boats, used boats, start coming down to what I consider bargain basement prices. And if they, they do, then I may step to the plate with my friends and, and buy a larger boat that's come off charter in Croatia or Greece or somewhere in Europe. And we will probably sail it over there for a few years. And everybody take their turn. I'll take my family with me for a couple weeks. The way I look at it, we could probably take on about five to ten partners. And everybody would get uh, 
two months to one month to two months of time on the boat, depending on how many people we take and where we where we have the sailing area. If it's in the Mediterranean, still your sailing time is really only about six months at the max. In the Caribbean, it could be a little longer than that if you get out of the hurricane zone, but still not a full 12 months a year. You're always going to have some downtime on a boat. But more people would get more use out of the boat than I could ever get out of the boat myself unless I became a liveaboard. And, and I really don't have any intention to becoming a full-time liveaboard. But opportunities may now present themselves which were not there when we were still in the everything bubble. Real estate, the stock market, boats, planes, the everything bubble. All right. I'm headed back to Indiana to clean out my mother's house be leaving next week driving across the country just because I thought it gives me a lot more flexibility. I don't know how long I'm going to be back there. But while I'm back there, I've arranged to make a presentation at the Columbia Yacht Club in Chicago. This is the Big Boat Yacht Club. They have an old ferry that they've converted into a clubhouse right along the shore there. And I've been invited to, to make a presentation at the club, and I'm looking forward to that, assuming it doesn't get canceled. That'll be at the end of... March, I think. Ah, the 27th, Friday, Friday, March 27th at the Columbia Yacht Club. And if you're in that area and you're thinking you want to attend, give the Columbia Yacht Club a call and see if you can attend. They are charging for the event. I don't know how much. Probably not very much. But it could be canceled due to the coronavirus. I don't know yet. I wrote them an email earlier this week. I said, hey, give me a heads up if you decide to cancel it. I am, I'm, I understand but as it stands right now, I'm still planning on making that presentation. So this is going to be a bit of a monologue. It's not going to be a long podcast. I'm going to go over what I did over the last month. Well, my wife and I flew down to New Zealand, first to Auckland and then down to Christchurch. When I made my initial flight reservations, I had not made my motorhome reservations. And I just uh, assumed that I'd pick up the motorhome and Queenstown. Well, as it turns out, there's hardly any camper van rental companies located in Queenstown. And to get <laughs> to get a, a camper van delivered to Queenstown would cost me more than I wanted to pay. So I had to undo my reservations and instead fly into Christchurch. So if you plan on doing what I've done, which is flying to New Zealand and renting a camper van and driving around the South Island for a while... Make sure you fly into Christchurch and not Queenstown because that's where most of the camper van companies are located. So we flew into Christchurch, stayed in a hotel for one night, and then the next day we picked up our camper van and started driving up towards Arthur's Pass and spent a night in one little campground just before you start really climbing into getting, getting into the hills. I think it was in um, Springfield that we might have stayed. And then the next morning, our microwave quit working. So I called up the camper van company, told them, they said, well, um, you can come back and we can put a new one in. So that's what we did. We drove back on back to Christchurch, put a new microwave in, <laughs> which turned out to be really not that needed because we really didn't use it that much during the rest of the trip. But anyway, we got a new microwave put in the camper van and continued on. Now, the camper van we picked up was basically uh, an old, old Toyota with over 300,000 kilometers on it. It was a van. It wasn't a big motor home. I mean, it had a, a nice area for a bed in the back. 
And if you actually wanted to use the settee, you could use the settee. It had a top that was popped up enough that I, as a six-foot-two tall person, could stand up straight up in it. So that made a big difference in comfort for me. I can't even stand straight up in my boat. I always have to walk around my boat a little bit hunched over. But we sort of referred to this as our boat because it was just like living on a, a boat for about a month. We would pull into different areas, uh, cook our meals, usually in the camper van or in the communal kitchen if it was a holiday-type park that we would stop in. And, yeah, it was, it was nice. The nice thing about having a camper van, and I thought about this a lot before we went over, was we had flexibility in our destinations. I thought about just making hotel reservations along the way, but that would not give me any flexibility in my itinerary, and we could not adjust it according to whether we liked an area or not. We would have to go from hotel to hotel to hotel to hotel, and I didn't like that idea. So that's why we went with a camper van. It gave us the flexibility, and we're glad we did because when we got to the company, and the company we used, by the way, was Campus South, and I recommend them. They were a good company to work with. They told us, go where the weather lets you go. And that's what we did. My wife was the weather router. And so the first thing we did is we saw that the rain was starting to come in. And we had a little bit of a window of opportunity to get over to the west side of the island. And so that's what we did. We went up over Arthur's Pass and down to Hokitika. So we went up over Arthur's Pass and down to Hokitita. During this time, my wife was coughing and coughing and coughing. She'd been fighting off a flu, and it went into pneumonia. And she had already had a prescription of antibiotics that she took in the States before she left, but it did not have enough of an effect to uh, to really kick it. So we stopped in at a, a medical clinic in Hokitika. <laughs> And they gave her some more antibiotics, and she started taking those. And still, even for another week, she was still coughing and coughing and coughing. We went by Greymouth, where one of my listeners, where one of our listeners was there, and he's an emergency room physician. And I had actually texted him ahead of time, seeing if we could meet up. But he'd just gotten back from uh, some time off and was very busy. And even though he offered to have us over for dinner, I could tell he was pretty busy. And we decided not to stop into Greymouth for the night, and we wanted to continue farther north. So the day we drove down to uh, Hokitika and went to the clinic, we started heading north because we did not want to go south because that's where the rain was and was coming. So we decided to turn north, and we drove up Highway 6, I guess it is, as far north as you could go, all the way up to the end of the road on the west side, which was a town north of Westport, Actually, it wasn't even a town. It was just a, a campground nor- way north into a town called, I think it was Mokahinui. I went on a hike there, short hike. My wife didn't join me because she still was not feeling very well. And then we got back in the camper van and headed up and uh, camped in the mountains that night. We were attacked by these, what are they called, sand flies or something. They were just vicious, just vicious. And then headed up to the north end of the island up to the wine-producing region. I did visit a winery while I was there. But if you're, if you're uh, the type of person that likes to visit vineyards, that's the area to go. Lots and lots of vineyards to visit in the north part of the South Island. We spent a couple nights in Mapua, 
and then started working our way across the northern part of New Zealand and then down the east part of New Zealand. I'm not going to go into every day, everywhere we stayed, but I will say one of the highlights of the trip was when we turned in the camper van and flew up to Auckland. And that night, we were invited to dinner by Carl and Dana Rudiger, who lived in the Beachlands, which is a suburb of Auckland, and invited us over to their house and had some friends over as well. So it was a wonderful evening of, of talking to her and her husband, and they plan on probably next year, which may be a great time to be looking at this, going over to Croatia or the Mediterranean and buying a boat with their family, and I, th- and I think they have two children, and spending a year sailing back to New Zealand on their boat. I said it's been done before. Sailing Avalon is uh, the people we've talked to on this podcast that have done it before. And they brought their parents over who were sailors, and they're, they're friends of the parents who were sailors. And we ended up spending two nights at the home of Helen and Ben Rutledge. Now, Helen and Ben have an interesting story. They're retired. They live aboard, for the most part, on a, I think it's a 40, 44-foot lagoon, lagoon catamaran, which they just bought recently. And he has an interesting story to tell about the loss of their first catamaran. So I've made him to commit to coming on the podcast and telling his story because this is his second catamaran. The first one sunk. And he told me the story. I said, we need to get you on the podcast to tell that story. And he agreed to. But he said, do it after this summer because this summer they're going to be going on a, uh, what, what, what would he say, a medical mission? where they are going to provide the transportation and housing for doctors and physicians and medical workers who are going to visit the outlying islands in Fiji to provide medical care to the villages that they visit. And they volunteered to let the people live on their boat and provide the transportation to the various islands. And they're excited about that. And they said, don't interview us until after this summer when we can talk about that experience as well. And I said, that sounds great. Also, I'm going to get Carl Rudiger on the podcast and let him explain how he plans on making this big adventure happen for his family. He said, you know what? You're right. You can't put it off. you got to do it and do it while you're young. He's at the perfect age for doing it. His children are young but old enough to appreciate a year year of adventure on a boat. And so I want to get him on and talk to him about it. All right. From that wonderful evening with Carl, Dana, and their friends, we spent two nights at the home of Helen and Ben Rutledge. We drove up to Opua, where my friend Doug Schmuck lives. Doug owns Doug's Boatyard in Opua. So if you're going and chartering a boat in Opua, so there's a huge marina in Opua, one of the largest in New Zealand. And then there's this tiny little boatyard called Doug's Boatyard. And my friend Doug Schmuck sailed his boat down there, oh, I may have been 20, 30 years ago. I fell in love with New Zealand and ended up staying there. He married Helen, who's from New Zealand, and they have a farm there. And he bought this boatyard, and he's been fighting the fight to keep this boatyard for years. The government keeps trying to take it away from him, and he keeps fighting it. But Doug still has a boat just like mine. Bristol Channel Cutter, Lyle Hess Design, Sam Moore's built Bristol Channel Cutter. We went out for a sail 
while we were there, and that is one of the most wonderful sailing areas I've ever seen. I can see why people go down there and never want to leave. The Bay of Islands is just gorgeous. So we went out for a day sail on his boat, and it was so much fun. I could easily live down in that area. And then we took some more side trips and then ended up flying back. Uh, My wife ended up getting food poisoning while she was over there. She never wants to eat fish and chips again. I never got food poisoning, and I ate pretty much the same thing she did, but I think her immune system is much weaker than mine, and so she picked that up. And So she didn't have as good a time as I did. She was always positive, had a positive outlook, and, and... And she enjoyed the trip. She had a great time on the trip. It's just that she didn't feel that great during most of the trip. Anyway, we're back in Salt Lake, and I'm headed off next week to go to South Bend, Indiana to clean up my mother's house. And the only thing I'm really going to talk about, other than what I've talked about already, is I've got a couple emails from listeners, and then I'm going to talk about preparing your boat for sailing in the Mediterranean. Let me share a couple emails from from, from my... Let me share a couple emails from listeners. This first email is from Aaron Maxwell. He writes, Hey Franz, how are you doing? Hope all is well. My name is Aaron. I'm one of your Patreon supporters. We shared a quick email exchange back in November when I joined your Patreon group. Dropping you a line as we are doing some interesting sailing right now, and I thought it might be good to share it. As a reminder, I'm a Kiwi who was living in San Francisco the last five years. I'd only done a little bit of sailing in the past, but have recently become more involved and have been encouraged greatly by your podcast. Love them. I listen to them every day on my commute in San Francisco as I planned and prepared for my upcoming sailing trips. They were super motivating and and informative. Please keep them going. When I first wrote you back in November, I was at the juncture of a major change in my life. I quit my job after 15 years at the same company, bought a boat in Croatia, Bavaria 46, and I'm having just started a year of learning and adventure. I've got a long ways to go, but this seemed like a great way to jump right in. But before I get really started in Croatia, we're currently on an epic journey, having joined a delivery crew on a Lagoon 42 cat from Les Sables, France, back to Split, Croatia. Our route is in the picture below. We're on passion still now. We have just over 2,000 miles behind us and are currently on our way to Nice in France. Due to the classification restrictions of the boat, we can't sail more than 12 miles offshore, which has made the journey somewhat longer, but definitely more interesting. The timing of delivery means we had mixed weather, and we've had to navigate and plan around. And the timing of the delivery means we've had mixed weather that we've had to navigate and plan around. The early journey coming around the Bay of Biscay was the hardest to plan, and we ended up stopping in La Coruna in Spain, a few days to wait out the weather. After that, we made good progress. We successfully crossed into the Gibraltar Strait at night in high winds, which was a rush. But the couple of days after that were rough going with high winds right on the nose and very foggy at night that had us on high alert. Not our favorite part of the trip. We've made stops so far in Coruna, Cascais, Portugal, Cartagena, Spain, and a short stop last night in Marseille before our next stop in Nice. It's been an amazing adventure so far and only possible due to my awesome cousin Nick. Nick, our skipper for the trip, he's another New Zealander out of Wellington. I've copied him this email. He worked and played 
in the sailing arena all his life across New Zealand, Australia, China, Caribbean, and Croatia. In Croatia, he and his wife, Mahina, now run a small business of family charter holidays in Croatia. If you want someone to connect with, with good spots in Croatia, he's your man. He's a top guy with a real passion for sailing and teaching. I was thinking he might be someone you'd like to interview for your podcast. Maybe he could talk about this delivery trip a bit and also share some other experiences. He does a lot of he does a lot of video for his work, so if you want to check it out, you can look at their YouTube page. And the YouTube channel is 45 Degrees Sailing. And then he goes on to say, If I remember, you were also planning a trip to New Zealand in the early part of this year. Have you been there and gone? If not, we have three, four Kiwis on this boat that might be able to give you some tips and connections depending on where you're going. We're currently four on the boat, Nick and his wife, Mihina, myself, and another Kiwi guy who currently lives north of Auckland and sails up there regularly. Anyway, that's a lot. Let me know if you're interested to connect. Have a chat. Until then, smooth sailing. And Aaron, thanks so much for that email, and you gave me your phone number. I'll give you a call on the phone, and I've responded to you and your brother, I think. And I haven't heard back from him yet, but I'd love to talk to him on the podcast. Let's get him on. And even if you'd like to come on the podcast and tell about your experiences, I'd like that as well. So uh, I will reach out to you both in email and by phone, and let's try to arrange something. And then I got an email from Kivanch. Kivanch wrote, Hi, Franz. Hope the thread below helps you remember us. Although behind schedule, I'm happy to report that we are still on track and more determined than ever. The last few months have been quite a journey. I've made a total of three trips to Europe, one of which was unplanned due to my father's passing. I've seen about 15 boats in Turkey and Croatia. It has been a learning experience, some good, some not so good, dealing with brokers, dealing with boat owners, meeting fellow sailors who generously offer their time and knowledge with no expectation of return, making friends, (laughs) false advertisements, private boats, ex-charter boats, offers, counter-offers, I've always believed that such experiences, including the pain and misery, is part of the learning process and will lead us into one happy to report end, and happy to report it that it did. A couple of weeks ago, we have signed a sales agreement for a 45-foot sloop and put the deposit down. We are ecstatic. The boat is much newer and more expensive than we originally planned, hence the delay in departure as we need to work for a couple more months to make up for the difference. We are flying to Dubrovnik mid-April for the sea trial and survey and hopefully close the deal while we're there. After seeing that many boats and the experience I gained in boat shopping, this one was a no-brainer and I'm confident there will be no issues with the boat or the owner, which I personally got to know over time, which is another interesting story. Funny how life works. Danielle and I bought our one-way tickets to Dubrovnik and if all goes as planned, we will move on to our floating home on May 25th which is currently birthed in a sleepy little town called Slano. From that day on, our adventure starts. I'm not sure where you keep your boat and what your sail plans are for the summer, but would love to meet up, whether it's in Croatia or somewhere in the Med. I know you don't like to write, so below is my phone number if you'd like to catch up. Kavanch. Yeah, Kavanch, I'll give you a call, and I'd like to get you on the podcast as well. Slano's just north of Dubrovnik. Been there. I think that's where ACI Marina has another marina in Slano. In fact, I'm positive that they do. Uh, I've never stayed at the ACI marina there, but I've stayed at some bays just to the north and to the south of Slano. Gone by it many times. Anyway, Kavanch, 
I look forward to talking with you on the phone and getting you on the podcast. Thanks for writing. And then I got an email from Peter Lawrence. Peter's been looking at a boat just like mine, a Bristol Channel Cutter. And he wrote me and he ended up paying 140000 for the boat, which I was happy to hear about. It gives me an idea of what my boat is worth. It, I looked at the pictures of it and it's in a little better shape than mine is. So my boat's probably worth a little less than that. But Bristol Channel Cutters do tend to hold their value. Anyway, he gave me his phone number, and I'll reach out to you, Peter, and talk on the phone at some point in time. The boat he bought was a 95 BCC, so my boat's probably 10 years older than that. So my boat would be a little less valuable than his boat. And the boat, from the pictures, looked like it was very well maintained. In addition to what we've already talked... All right, let's get on to what I want to talk about, about preparing your boat for sailing in the Mediterranean. If you're an American and you want to sail across the pond and go sailing in the Mediterranean, let me give you a few tips to try to prepare ahead of time to make your life much easier once you get into the Mediterranean. First of all, let's talk about getting on and off your boat. In America, most of the marinas have finger pontoons. In Europe and in the Mediterranean, very, very few marinas have finger pontoons. So you're getting on and off your boat from your stern or your bow. So you need to make a paseo and have that with you when you cross the pond. I've seen some really nice ones. And my paseo is basically a plank, a board that I picked up. Well, when I first got over there, somewhere in Spain for my first one, and then in Dubrovnik for the second one. <laughs> Mine leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, it, my boat is not made for it. When I went to the Mediterranean, if I had known I needed to prepare for this, I would have made a not much better paseo, which comes off the stern of the boat. When I first sailed over there, I would climb out the bowsprit and step down to the deck, to the dock or the quay. Uh, and that's getting harder and harder as I get older and older. So nowadays, I always back into a slip. Also, when I first went over there, I always went bow to in the in the, in the marinas because I couldn't figure out how to back up my boat. I still can't figure out how to back up my boat, but I just put lots of fenders over and just <laughs> back up my boat into this space. And so I step off the stern of my boat now, and my paseo or my boarding plank is just a board. The first one I had... I think I've told this story. I was in City in Greece on Antipaxi Island, and I was stepping off the boat to take the garbage. It would just come in for a sail up from down south somewhere. I think it would come up from Previsa. And we got into City and would backed into a slip, and we had garbage on board. So I uh, put out the, the boarding ladder, the plank, and I stepped on the boarding plank with this, my, both of my hands full of garbage, and the boarding plank broke and my shins went right down on well my right shin went right down and crashed into the corner of the concrete and then I went into the water underneath that and I was in so much pain for the next day the next day I basically sat at a bar with ice on my shin trying to get the swelling to go down and even to this day I have a scar from that so I recommend you get something a little stronger than I did so you don't have that experience uh, that's the first thing you need to do. Make sure you have some sort of a way to get on and off your boat from the key, either from the front or from the stern. I think most boats in the Mediterranean get on and off their boat from the stern. Most boats back into the slips. There are a few that go bow in because they like the privacy that that offers. I, I like to back in. 
I, I like to sit in the back of my cockpit and sit back and have dinner or a drink and watch the world go by and do my people watching from the stern. So I like to back into a slip. The next thing you need to know about traveling in the Mediterranean is the voltage. In America, we are 110 volt, 60 cycles, or 60 hertz. It tells you how old I am. I still am a person that talks in cycles and not in hertz. But 60 hertz. In Europe, it's 210 volts, 50 hertz. Now, the hertz doesn't seem to affect much. But when I first sailed from the States, I did not have any way to adapt from 110 to 220. So the first thing I did when I arrived in Sevilla is I, I got in a taxi and went to an electrical supply house and bought a big downstep converter, a big downstep transformer that went from 220 down to 110. And every time I would tie up and, and plug into shore power, I'd plug the shore power into this transformer and then the transformer into my battery charger on the boat. West Marine and a couple other companies have dual chargers. I recommend that you get one of these. These are battery chargers that will either run on 220 or 110. Now, since my boat is pretty simple, I just go into a 12-volt system, and that's what runs all my lights and everything else in my boat. And if I need AC, then I plug an inverter into one of my sockets, and then I get AC from the 12 volts. If you've run a system on your boat where you have 110 outlets, that makes it a lot more complicated. But since I don't, all I need to do is plug my, which I bought. I bought a new battery charger from West Marine, which handles both 110 and 220. So if and when I ever come back to the States or the Caribbean, which I think is 110 as well, all I, I don't need to do anything. I just need to plug it into my charger and it'll work fine for my boat. So if you're going in the Mediterranean, or even if you think you might at some point in time, get a battery charger for your boat that will work on both 110 and 220. All right. And the last advice I have, and there should be others, but these are the three things that really come to my mind in preparing to sail in the Mediterranean is get an electric windlass you know, you can sail around the United States, and most of the time you're hopping from marina to marina to marina, and you're not thinking about anchoring every night. And if you're young and you have a strong back, you're thinking, well, it's nylon and chain. Uh, I'm just going to pull it up by hand. That gets old really fast if you're dropping anchor. And I don't recommend a nylon and chain road. I recommend all chain for anchoring. And if you're pulling up 100 feet of anchor chain, that can wear yourself out really fast. And if you have to be doing this when the boat is swinging back and forth at anchor, it's going to be very difficult. Get yourself an electric windlass. You will be so happy that you did that. Also, it's going to make your anchoring so much easier. Because when you anchor, sometimes you're going to have to pull up and re-anchor because it doesn't hold or you didn't end up where you wanted to end up. And it's no big deal. If you have an electric windlass, you just push the button pull up the anchor, go reset somewhere else. Now, I recommend that you are able to control the windlass from the cockpit and the bow of the boat. A lot of boats have buttons or switches built into the deck that you step on or step off to raise or lower the anchor. If that works for you, that's fine. I solved this problem of 
wanting to be able to control it from the front or the back by putting a control box on a long cord that sits in the inside the boat, in the middle of the boat, out of the weather. And when I'm getting ready to anchor, I run this control box up through my center hatch. And the line I've got it is long enough that I can walk either to the front of the boat or to the cockpit. So I can control the anchor on either place. In fact, I can walk forward while I'm raising it or or walk back to the cockpit while I'm controlling the anchor road. So I recommend highly that you get an electric windlass if you're going to be sailing in the Mediterranean. Now, when I sailed across, I had a hand windlass. And for every stroke, I'd pull up the chain about six inches. I got by with that for probably five years while I was sailing in the Mediterranean. But it is very difficult to single-hand sail if that's what you have. And since I single-hand sail quite a bit, I like to be able to pull up the anchor by myself while controlling the boat from the cockpit. There's always ways to work around it if you don't, but I recommend that you consider putting in, I highly recommend that you consider putting in an electric windlass. That's all I can think of right off the top of my head. I'll think about it some more, and if there's some other tips, I'll let you know along the way. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please write a review in iTunes. And if you have any great stories to tell, reach out to me. I'll interview you on the podcast. Thanks for listening. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f*** gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it.